0: Good morning. morning. Hey, that was great. How are y'all doing? Is everybody doing all right? It's good. Good. Well, uh, I'm glad you're here. Uh, I'm excited to be with you, to worship with you this morning. Uh, If you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12 today. So 1 John chapter 4, towards the end of the New Testament, we're going to be in verses 7 through 12 and as you're flipping there, I want to introduce myself. My name is Trey Dove, and I'm the spiritual formation pastor here at Huddo Bible Church. Just in case you're new or uh, I haven't had the chance to meet you, consider this a, a, a welcome to our church. We're glad that you're here to worship with us. Uh, we are this week in our second of four weeks through a series on community that we've called Belong. Uh, last week, I made the point, uh, if you were here, that there is no biblical category for spiritual maturity that exists in isolation despite what the majority of American Christians have indicated to believe. And Paul actually in 1 Thessalonians 3 uh, ties together, ties to each other, our love for one another and the command to be holy as God is holy. So that was last week's sermon. If you were here, you heard that. If not, it's on the internet, uh, on our website and podcast and all the places where you might find that. But We established last week that community is a grace. It's a gift of God's grace to His people. And we're going to come back to this as often as we can because I think it's important to continually reiterate that community is a gift of God's grace to His people. Today, I also want to establish that community, living in community, is a discipline. Like, living in community is a spiritual discipline. Now, you may not think... That's the case. Like when you think of spiritual disciplines or formative practices or holy habits or whatever you want to call them, living in community may not make the list of your like top five, right? But listen, it, it takes commitment. Like, to live in community takes commitment. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes consistency. It takes learning. Like, we have to learn how to do community well, and in partnership with the Holy Spirit, it becomes the tool used by God to shape us and form us into the image of Jesus. Now, it's not the only spiritual discipline that we need to practice uh, to grow and experience God's grace as followers of Christ. Like, it's important that we spend time alone in God's Word and in prayer like that's an essential part of the Christian life. Some of us just need to learn to spend time alone. Like we get really antsy when we sit still and quiet for too long. We need to learn to be alone with God in his word and in prayer. We also need to sabbath. Like some of us need to learn to rest, to take a day off from work and enjoy God's good gifts to just play. Like I I'm I'm beginning to think playing is is also a spiritual discipline in some way. Like we need to learn to just play right enjoying god's good gifts the spiritual disciplines it's important to know they they're not like a buffet so we don't get to pick and choose which discipline we want to engage with and which one we want to leave. But to experience all that God has for us as his people, we need all of the spiritual disciplines. And, and like all spiritual disciplines, living in community is good and necessary, and it takes time. It takes resolve. Like all disciplines, community takes some training up. And by that, I mean we have to plan for it. We have to uh, be intentional and methodical and consistent. Like it requires personal sacrifice. Like when I think of training, personally, I think of running. Now for the record, uh, if there are any runners in the room, I think you're bonkers. I hate running. It is the worst ever. Um, Never have I ever enjoyed going for a long run or just running in general, but especially the longer runs, like it just doesn't make sense to me how you would like that. Talking about running makes my heart rate go up. But here's what I know. I know that I could run a half marathon, I would never commit to running a full marathon because that's insanity, but I could run a half marathon. Now, I can't do it today, not in the shape that I'm in, but I could train, and I could grow, and I could follow a regimen, and over time, what once seemed impossible for me can actually be possible. It can be achieved, but to get to that point, I have to be willing to stick to the plan. I have to be willing to fix my eyes, not on the process, but on the end result, and I have to believe that what waits for me there at the end is worth the discomfort it's worth the challenges, it's worth worth the sacrifice and the setbacks that I might encounter along the way. So today, right now, I can't run 13.1 miles. But over time, I might find that I have the capacity for more than what I once thought. And similarly, living in community takes the same level of commitment, the same level of discipline, the same level of training up, but the prize at the end is not a medal, it's not a trophy, it's not a t-shirt per se, unless your group makes matching t-shirts, that's a thing, but at the end, is a, a far greater prize than any of those things. Now, I use this idea of training for a reason because anybody who has trained for anything in their life knows that the process is often full of setbacks or obstacles, right? Now, some of those are external, meaning they come from outside of us. They're beyond our control, but some of them are internal. Like for me, again, for example, every time I've decided I'm going to start running, I'm going to get healthy, I tell my wife today's the day or whatever, I'll wake up on the first day I run and it's amazing and it's great and I feel like a superstar and then day two comes and there's an obvious temptation, an obvious obstacle right there that's really hard to say no to. Does anybody know what that might be? Sleep. I heard someone say it. They get me, right? This this temptation, this obvious obstacle is my bed. Why get up and run when I can stay in my bed and sleep and be warm and be comfortable and be happy? My bed won't hurt me like running will, right? Now, or the couch. Now, I when I think of training, I think of The motivational signs in a gym or a locker room that you might find or whatever, the one that comes to my mind is no excuses. If you've played sports or if you've ever paid for a gym membership, you might have seen that. Well, why would that sign exist if not for the fact that we are prone to making excuses? Excuses used to justify our weakening resolve or our waning commitment. Now, some excuses are valid, right? Like, I'm not going to go for a run today because I shattered my ankle. Fair enough, you probably shouldn't try to go for a run on a broken ankle, but some, such as my bed is warm or I'm too comfortable to get up, in the long run, those excuses cause more damage than they do good, and they weaken our resolve, and they lull us back to sleep, and ultimately they rob us of the opportunity to experience the joy that awaits at the end of the race. Now, cards on the table, I think there's something working behind the curtain, rather I think there's someone working behind the curtain to keep us as the people of God from moving towards community. We'll get into that later, but I want to try and answer two questions this morning. The first is, what is this glorious experience that is waiting for us in community? Like, what has God made available to me that I need only move towards community in order to experience? And the second question is, who or what is really at work to keep me from experiencing all that God has for me in community? And so this is 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So starting in verses 7 and 8, I'm going to actually work backwards, beginning with John's little statement there that God is love. Now it's a small statement, a short statement, but it is incredibly profound because love Like love requires an object or or like a recipient of one's love, right? Like to be loving requires that we have a place to put that love. But God is love is an incredible statement because it means that he does not require someone else or something else other than himself to be love. Now, how can that be the case? Well, this is the case because God is Trinity, because God is triune, God the Father, God the Son, God the whole, Holy Spirit. Like this is, this is what Michael Reeves says in his book, Delighting in the Trinity. He says, single person gods having spent eternity alone are inevitably self-centered beings. And so it becomes hard to see why they would ever cause anything else to exist. And if such gods do create, they always seem to do so out of an essential neediness or desire to use what they create merely for their own self-gratification. But everything changes when it comes to the Father, Son, and Spirit. Here is a God who is not essentially lonely, but who has been loving for all eternity as the father has loved the son in the spirit. Tim Keller in his book, Reason for God, writes, Christianity alone among the world faiths teaches that God is triune. The doctrine of the Trinity is that God is one being who eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Trinity means that God is in essence relational. And then here's a quote from Cornelius Plantinga, who with that name, you're either gonna be an NFL star or a theologian, and there's no in between, right? Amen. But this is what he writes. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit glorify each other at the center of the universe. Self-giving love is the dynamic currency of the Trinitarian life of God. The persons within God exalt, commune with, and defer to one another. When early Greek Christians spoke of perichoresis in God, they meant that each divine person harbors the others at the center of his being. In constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles the others. And so here's the point. It's it's that For all eternity, God the Father has loved God the Son through the Spirit. And the Son for all eternity has loved the Father through the Spirit. And both Father and Son share fully and equally in their love for the Spirit of God. And there is one God. Now, without getting into the weeds, this news that God is triune is good news because it means that perfect love existed and is shared for all eternity between Father, Son, and Spirit. And so God needs no one and no thing in order to be loving or in order to love because it exists as a harmonious dance between the three persons of the one true God, which means that God isn't needy right? He doesn't act out of neediness, but every action of God is an outpouring of the love that exists in himself. It is love shared, it is love imparted, and it is infinite because God himself is infinite. It just goes on and on and on without end. And so how can Paul, like last week in 1 Thessalonians 3, how can Paul pray, God, fill your people up with a love that increases and abounds for one another? Well, it's because there's no limit on the amount of love that God can give to his people by the Spirit. And because God is love, it means all that he does is loving. And so every action of God is an act of love. This is what this is the reality that John is working from when he then says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now, This is the third time in John's letter when he addresses the mutual love that should exist among brothers and sisters in Christ. In chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, he makes the point that our love for one another is evidence that we are in the light, the light is in us, and that we walk in the light. In chapter three, verses 11 through 18, it's that our love for one another is evidence of the eternal life that we've received from God through faith in Jesus. And here he ties our love for one another to the character of God and our position in Christ. He ties it again to our knowledge of God, which Jesus in John 17, three says that it is knowledge of God that is eternal life. It's that we know him, not just facts, but we know him. This is eternal life. Now in this passage, John repeats this exhortation three different times, verse 7, 11, and 12, making the point abundantly clear that this is the holy obligation of every follower of Jesus to move towards each other in self-giving love because that's who God is. It's not just what he does, though that's true, and we'll get to that, but it's who he is, and a clear and unavoidable sign that one knows God is that they love their brothers and sisters in Christ. And consequently, a clear sign that one does not know God is that they lack love, self-giving, affectionate love for God and for others. Now, that's important, love for God and love for others, because one is not sufficient to silence the skeptic. In John, love of God but disdain for others is unimaginable. And love for others without a love for God is misplaced. It's a type of love that becomes transactional very, very quickly because it positions a person in the place that only God himself can sit. And then we expect through their reciprocation of love that our need, our greatest need would be satisfied. Jesus says it's both love of God and love of others that fulfills the whole law. It's not either or, but it's both and. So in verses 9 through 10, we get to the depth of God's love, right? God is love. But what sign do we have in human history of God's great, infinite, self-giving love? Well, John says, look at the incarnation of Jesus. Look at the cross. Like the love of God was made manifest. It was made known. It was revealed to us in the sending of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the triune God, right? chapter 4, verse 9, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. I just want that to sink in this morning, church. That the infinite, eternal, second person of the triune God, the Son, took on flesh and became a man. He tethered Himself for the rest of eternity to a flesh and blood body. He... Exists out of time itself. And more than two thousand years ago, he stepped into the confines of time so that he was an infant, he was a toddler. He was a boy, a teenager, eventually a man, and his body, the body that he took on, was physically limited to and bound by the limits of time, meaning that, like, Jesus aged, his skin wrinkled, he hungered, and he thirsted, and all of this happened in a time and at a place, and so that he who writes and guides all of human history stepped into the story himself so that, according to John, we might have life through him, like Like, have you ever wondered or found yourself asking, like, does God really love me? Like, how can I know that God loves me? How can He love me? Like, is there a sign? Is there something like, God, how do I know that you love me? Well, the answer is, of course He does. You know how, you know how I know? Because He came. Like, Jesus Christ came. That's how you can know. At a real point in human history, more than 2,000 years ago, he came. In fact, his movement is not and has never been away from you. His movement is always towards you in self-giving affection. And, and it wasn't because God saw your great love for him that compelled him to action. He's not needy. He doesn't need your love. Remember? And you didn't love him. Like in, In Romans 5, Paul says it's that while we were enemies of God, that the Father sent the Son so that we would be reconciled to God. Meaning the relationship that you were created to have with with God Himself, which was fractured because of sin, that relationship in Christ was restored. It was healed. And it's, it's not displayed. His love is not displayed. And that He came to save those who already loved Him, but that He came to save those who hated Him and to give them life. And He did it through His Son who was sent to be the propitiation for our sin according to verse 10. Which that word propitiation means atoning sacrifice. It's it's translated that way in the NIV, but it's the idea of a payment, a sacrifice being made to cover the offense or to make two parties at one with one another. And so, like in the Old Testament, this was done uh, through the sacrifice of unblemished animals, right? Their blood was shed and spilled to atone for or cover the sins of the one making the offering. But those offerings, they had a shelf life, they had an expiration date. And you know when it was? It was when they sinned again. And so you could sacrifice the animal, the blood would atone for your sin, and then you walk out of the tabernacle and you do something sinful, and now you have to make another sacrifice. They weren't sufficient. They were sufficient for a moment until you sinned, and you had to keep making sacrifices. But then Christ came, and Christ died as the perfect and final sacrifice to atone for sin so that His blood did what no animal or act of goodwill could do. It paid for the sins of God's people in full This is the point of Hebrews chapter nine, like the entire chapter, just going to quote verse 26, the writer says, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so how deep is the love of God? So deep that he would send his son to make his love known. How deep is the love of God? Well, it's so deep that he would sacrifice his son to make the experience and the reception of his love accessible. And it flows directly from who he is, infinitely, meaning this well does not run dry. And it's received in faith. Believe in Jesus as the propitiation for your sins and receive this love of God. Now, in verse 11, John addresses the effect of God's love, right? He he says, beloved, essentially, if God loves us in this way, we are to love one another. We can do no other than to love one another if we've received and experienced this love of God. And then in verse 12, he wraps this section up with this incredible, incredible connection. He says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So you might be thinking, okay, I thought we were talking about communion. Well, this is where where it all connects, right here. Because John's point is that the love of God perfects itself, or it completes itself. It's like a circuit that closes in us, in the way His people love one another. Like it's perfected in our love for one another, and it's experienced in and through our relationships with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, no one has ever seen God. According to John 4.24, it's because God is spirit, meaning he's disembodied. Again, the incarnation is just mind-boggling that Christ would take on flesh. I can keep going there. But nonetheless, Jesus says, no one has seen the Father except he who came from the Father. When Philip said, Jesus, when are you going to show us the Father? He says, look at me. I came to make the father known, right? And so the point is no one has seen God, but that doesn't mean we can't experience his love in tangible ways even now. In fact, the point John makes is that we experience God's love tangibly through our love for one another. John Stott wrote, Today his love is seen in and through our love, that is, the unseen God who once revealed himself in his Son now reveals himself in his people if and when they love one another. God's love is seen in their love because their love is his love imparted to them by his Spirit. And so I think of it like this. Like it's it's one thing to know something is true, Right? Like, it's, no, it's, it's one thing to know objective truth. This is a fact, and it's a whole nother thing to experience something that gives affirmation to what you know is already true, right? Or perhaps to experience something that affirms what you knew to be true but maybe began to doubt. Like, it's one thing to know that God is love and that God loves me as objective truth. I read it in the Word when I open it up. I know it's true because it's there, but I experience that love, the love of God through my brothers and sisters in Christ. It's it's experienced and affirmed in tangible ways through a meal that's offered in a time of need or distress. It's experienced and affirmed through a phone call, a text, or an in-person word of encouragement when my soul is downcast. It's experienced through the gentle rebuke of a brother or sister when I begin to walk in sin. It's experienced when when there's no baby formula and at any grocery store within like five miles and your kid needs baby formula and you've got a brother or sister who's got a little despair and so they drive over to give it to you because your kid needs it. It gets experienced when rent is due and the money isn't there and then a gift comes in and it's given freely to cover all of your expenses. It's experienced when your car breaks down and you've got to get to work in order to pay the bills and a friend, a brother or sister says, take mine. Just take it. I don't need it. Like how do I know God loves me? Well, John would say, first, look at Jesus. But how do I know God loves me? Second, he would say, look at how God pours His love out upon you through His people. And this type of love experienced it happens in community. Like we experience His love for us in ways that can be tasted and seen and touched and smelt and measured in the context of community, because that's where. The command to love one another takes on legs. And I want to be clear, God's desire is to not withhold this experience from you, but to pour it out lavishly upon his people. He's made this available to us in Christ, and he pours it out, and he pours it out through his people who've been filled with his love by the Holy Spirit. And so my point is that it's right there waiting for you when you move towards community. Now to go back to where I started earlier, living in community is a discipline. It takes training, not just trying, as all disciplines do. And like all disciplines, there are obstacles that we face along the way. There are commitments that we can make to help us train up, as train us up as we live in community. And there are things that help to foster and build community. And then there are things that will inevitably work against us in this pursuit. There are excuses that we make. There are lies that we believe. There are stories that we believe that keep us from moving in or towards community to experience this gift of God's grace and love. And so I want to address some of those. I'm not going to cover all of them that are out there. I know that. I can't do that. But but here's just some of the ones that I hear most frequently. The first is that I'm too busy. Like, building community and living in community takes time because relationships take time. Now, there are reasons and there are seasons where circumstances don't allow us to join a community group, a Bible study, or whatever, where we can begin to really plug in and live in community. And I get that. I understand that. But when the exception becomes the rule, we put ourselves in a really dangerous spot. And the sense that I get is that busyness has become one of our greatest obstacles to experiencing all that God has for us in community. And the truth is, we make time for the things that matter. And if we're really honest, for some of us living in community just doesn't matter that much. And so we fill our schedules, we fill them up to the brim with things that are good, things that are bad, things that are meaningful, things that are meaningless. And then we sprinkle some coffee dates and some dinner dates in there to get a dose of human interaction. But there's no regularity. There's no consistency. And community takes time. It takes consistency to build. And so if you wonder, does this this matter to me? I would say start by looking at your schedule. Is there time in your schedule for this? Do you allow for time in your schedule to be in community? The second is, it's uncomfortable. And, and if you think community is uncomfortable, can I just tell you, you're absolutely right. Community is really, really uncomfortable, especially when you start out. Like, it's like running. Running is really, really uncomfortable, especially when you begin to run. That doesn't make it bad. Then you take a nap after, right? But for some of us, For some of us, maybe we struggle with social anxiety. For some of us, we're further on the introvert spectrum of the Myers-Briggs, that's me, right? And so we're like, oh, I have a people limit, I get it. For some of us, we just don't know what to expect. And so it's the fear of the unknown that actually keeps us away from community. Again, there's no shortage of reasons we might not commit to this, but it is like we tell my two-year-old daughter, sometimes we do things we don't want to do or like to do because it's good for us. And in my experience, the payoff is so much greater when that's the case. The third thing I hear often is that community is messy. Amen? I already had one. Community is messy because people are messy. Life is messy. If you joined a community group that did not have any mess in it, you would bring the mess to the party because you're messy. And for some of us, it's it's dealing with other people's messiness that keeps us out of community. For some of us, it's our own messiness. Like we have this fear of being found out or we're terrified of being truly known. Like they can't know that I struggle with fill in the blank because if they do, they'll judge me, they'll hate me, they'll write me off, they'll treat me weird or whatever. And so it's better that I don't say it. In fact, it's better that I stay home. Now, when community is done well, guess what? You will be found out. You will. Community, living in community has a way of exposing our sins and our imperfections. But you know what else will happen? Everybody else will be found out. Everybody else. Not just you. And what a grace to know you're not the only messed up person in the room. Like you will learn things about people's lives, about their marriages, about their finances, about their failures as a parent that will blow your mind. And then what you get to see is the grace of God made available in Christ covering all of that mess. The fourth thing I hear is that I'll just get hurt again. Now, I don't know the experiences of everybody in the room, but I can imagine that some of us have really deep wounds caused by people that we once thought to be near and dear to us. And so the fear of putting yourself out there again and the fear of experiencing that pain again, it cripples you and it keeps you away. And I'm not going to pretend that you won't get hurt again. I'm not going to pretend that you won't hurt people along the way because you absolutely will. But do you know what has the power to heal relational wounds? Relationships. Amen. It's amazing. There have been studies that have actually proven this to be true, like psychologically and neurologically. Like there's something that happens to us that when we move towards relationships, the previous traumas begin to actually heal. Those wounds begin to close up. Now, if you're in an abusive relationship or an abusive friendship please don't hear me say that you just need to tough it out. That's not what I'm saying. But often it's, it's a careless word or a thoughtless action that wounds us, and our response is we run for the hills or we throw up a wall, and I'm telling you, that will not produce in you what you think it will. You know, God calls us people to move towards reconciliation, to confess, to repent, to forgive, and to, to restore those relationships that were fractured. The fifth is that I just don't fit in, right? And so you think, well they, they they've kind of got their thing, these people've got their thing, they've got their groups and I don't know how I fit. I don't know my place. This This begins to happen when we elevate our differences rather than thinking about what draws us together and unites us. Like what we have in common with one another, in particular as brothers and sisters, that we've been united in Christ, that we love Jesus. That transcends all of the differences. But when we walk in the room and we think about what makes us different, not what ties us together, that's where we start to think, I don't fit here. I don't fit here. I don't fit here. And the final is that I'm just better alone. That I'm just, it's great that people have got their thing, community's their thing, that's awesome, but I'm just better off on my own. And the, the reality is you're just not. Like, you're just not. And again, maybe you really value your alone time, so do I. Take it. You need it. I get it. That's not what I'm talking about. God did not design you or I for that matter to to go at life alone or in isolation or to be anonymous. Like in the garden of Eden when God created the cosmos, everything is good. It's good. It's good. It's good. And then for the first time in the entire creation narrative, he sees Adam alone and he says, "That's not good." It's not good for man to be alone. And so I said last week There's no biblical category for spiritual maturity that exists in isolation, not for the follower of Jesus, because it's woven into our DNA. Now, I know I haven't covered every reason we might have for staying out of community. But my point in all of this is that there is a grace that's been purchased by Jesus, a grace that can be experienced tangibly in community. As John says, the love of God expressed and experienced through his people towards one another and the lies we believe are the stories we tell ourselves that keep us from experiencing this grace. The, I'm too busy, I'm too messy, they won't accept me, you know, whatever. All of that is fodder that is then used by the enemy to keep you from experiencing the grace of God and the love of God made available to you in community. Like in his word, God often pulls back the curtain to reveal to his people things unseen and things most often forgotten. And one of those is that we have an enemy, a real enemy, because God has an enemy. And one of those things... That the enemy wants to do so badly is to, wherever he can, prevent the people of God from experiencing and receiving all that God has made available to them in Christ. Like in Ephesians 6, Paul says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In John 10.10, he says the thief, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came that they may have life abundantly. In 1 Peter 5.8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. In Revelation 12, says, Satan's called the great deceiver of the world. And in John 8, he's called the father of lies for lying is his native tongue. And then in James 4 and 1 Peter 5, there is this call to the people of God to resist the devil. And I'm just, my burden for you this morning, church, is that you would do that. That you would resist him. Like, I joked during the 8 o'clock, but it's a half joke. Like, I initially, this was going to be like a spiritual warfare sermon. And I thought, let's eh, let's rein it in. Let's go a different direction. Because this has just been my my burden for you. That there's more happening behind the curtain. More than what our eyes see and what our minds comprehend. Because we have an enemy and, and his desire is that you would stay in bed. Where it's warm and cozy and comfortable and where inevitably you can be lulled back to sleep. And I want you to resist him. I want you to move towards a life lived in community and experience the love of God as he pours it out through his people. For no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And so if there is a grace that's been made available to you by God, a grace that can be experienced, an expression of God's love that is right there, just waiting for you to step into it, then the desire of the enemy is to keep you out. And my hope is that instead, you would move towards a life lived in community and that you would see and hear those excuses for what they are, excuses meant to weaken our resolve and fodder that the enemy uses to say, no, 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 no. Go back to sleep. Go back to bed. It's warm there. It's safe there. It's comfortable there. See, my hope is that you would resist the enemy with the help of the Holy Spirit and that you would step into all that God intends for you to receive in the context of community because there is a grace and a love that comes from God. Again, one that can be tasted and touched and seen and smelled and heard. And it is waiting for you in community. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you. Just a grateful people, grateful that your love was not kept a secret, that this love that is unfathomable, that is that is in, intrinsic to who you are, God, this love has been put on display for us in Christ, in his life, in his coming, in his death, in his resurrection. I am so thankful that as your son, I get to step into community and actually experience this love tangibly. My desire, God, is that we as your people would be those who move, who run towards community and not towards isolation. That when it's uncomfortable, when it's messy, when we're too busy when we're fearful whatever the things that we think this this is good enough to keep me out god i pray that we would be reminded in that moment by your spirit that the enemy wants nothing more than for his for your people to go back to sleep and what an opportunity to resist him and to step into the space that you god have ordained to be the place where we get to experience your grace and your love again and again and again through one another. God, help us to be a church that loves you and loves one another. We love you, Jesus. We're so, so thankful. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We are moving uh, into a time of communion, and so uh, if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, even if you're not a a member of our church, we welcome anyone who is a follower of Christ to the table, and so the band is going to play, and as they do, you are free to move around the room, come on up, grab the elements, take them back, and then we will partake in the Lord's table together. This week, church, uh, I don't know the right word to use. I've got two that come to mind, but the two words that I have that just describe uh, the emotion or kind of how I felt leading up to this Sunday was, uh, I would say, I was either provoked or burdened for y'all. Um, because, again, there there is this incredible, incredible, gift of God's grace that's just right there for us when we step into community and I just thought man I don't know how many people aren't experiencing this but I want all of us to get to experience this incredible incredible gift of God's grace and, and so, like, I, I joked earlier, but, like, I really was like, spiritual warfare, let's go, right? That was going to be the Sunday, and I thought, no, I, I, I think there's a different way to go about this because I think it, it is stunning to consider what God did to make His love accessible to His people all that He's done to make it so that we can, moment by moment, day by day, live into and experience this incredible gift of grace and this incredible love that just flows out from who God is, beginning with sending His Son sending his son to make his love known throughout human history in his life, and his death. I mean, you think again, the second person of the triune God taking on flesh, flesh that would ultimately be ripped apart and filling his body with blood that would ultimately be spilled to do what animal blood could not do, to do what my good works could not do. But to pay for my sin in full, again, so that I would have access to this love? Like, that's, that's why we come to the table. And this is who we get to fellowship with. It's Jesus Christ himself. And so, church, this bread is the body of Christ, the eternal Son. Broken for you, take and eat. And what the blood of bulls and goats and turtle doves could not do, the blood of Jesus Christ, perfect, pure, holy, did. For you and for I, atoned for all of our sins. Take and drink. Let's worship together. Amen. Well, church, uh, man, I so badly want uh, for everybody in here to just get, receive, experience all that God has for you in Christ. Um, And so if you're not actively in a community, like a smaller community of brothers and sisters that know you and you know them and you kind of do life together and you don't even know where to start, but you're like, okay, I need to do it, but I don't know where to start. Reach out to us. We would love to help you find a community group. We'd love to get you connected to men's and women's ministry. We'd love to get you in discipleship, like whatever. Like we, we bake community into everything we do at Hutto Bible Church because we think it's that important that you are a part of it. And so uh, if you don't know where to start, reach out, email us, info at huddlebible.com, put it on your connection card, whatever. And and we would love to help you take that next step as a follower of Christ. Um, Lastly, before we dismiss, tonight is a really, really special night for us as a church. Uh, If you were here for announcements, you know, uh, Josh mentioned that we're having a worship night and ordination tonight. I want to really focus on the ordination part. Tonight is going to be an incredibly special night for our church because we get to ordain Zach McLeod as a pastor. And so as you know, yeah, you can celebrate that. You like started to celebrate and then you backed off like, that's okay. Um, This is a really, really big deal where we as a church get to celebrate Zach's gifts, and Zach's love for the Lord, and and in particular, the, the call to full-time ministry that the Lord has placed on Zach's heart, and has placed over his life, like, we, we get to be the church that doesn't just, like, we get to celebrate that, and affirm that, and, and, like, welcome Him as our pastor, not just as our worship director. And so tonight, 6.30 p.m., we're going to be in this room. Again, night of worship, night of celebration, of ordination. We want everybody to come back. Um, if you need child care, we have it available. If you'll register for that on the church center, if you're like, that's okay, my kids love the music, that's fine. Bring them on in. It's a family occasion, so they can be a little rowdy, and we're okay with that. But we want you here because this, this is a really, really special night for us as a church. And we would love everybody to join us if you can. And so with that, church, I hope you have a wonderful Sunday. Grace and peace. You're dismissed.